Good Friday morning, guys. My name is Jerry Miller, and welcome to Real Talk with Keith Smith. Thank you kindly for joining us on the I Love Seville Network on a show today presented by Keller Williams Alliance. KWA, baby. Get, get ready to see the godfather of KWA today on Real Talk with Keith Smith. Godfather. Lee Elberson, also in the house. The show is dynamic. You, the viewer and listener, can join us in the discussion and shape it by offering comments and perspective. Judah Wickhauer, props to you, my friend. It's Friday. It's payday. It's beautiful. It's payday. Uh, he loves payday. It's my favorite day. Um, Lee Elberson, we'll get him in the mix, the CEO of Claiborne, one of the partners of Eight Hats. Quentin Beckham, when I introduce you, if I had to introduce you professionally, I'd be here for 10 minutes. This is how I'm going to introduce you. You're just a cool guy, an all-around A-plus guy, because the titles professionally are long and, 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 and plentiful, my friend. It also rules out all the people that help me with that stuff. Like, it makes it sound like it's about me, and it's really more about them. I like his approach. It's a Leo. great leadership, man. I know. Just talk about the people that, that help you. That's a yeah. That's why QB is the QB. That's why he's QB. That's why he's QB. All right, gentlemen. This is the my, my favorite part about having you on the show is I get to talk less and I get to adapt to you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go um, looks before. Um, Beauty? Stylish attire. Stylish. So I'm going to start with Quentin Beckham. Looks before stylish attire over here, Lee Elberson. I'm giving him a zing over stylish. here. Stylish. Thank you. Quentin Beckham, you get to go anywhere you want you on know, any topic. Outside of my generic affinity for rainbows, <laughs> I, I just want to point out that you guys mostly see him in a suit. This is more the real Lee. I, I would agree with that. I agree with that. Colorful, over the top. You know what I mean by that? Approachable, likable, yeah. easy to talk to, incredibly intelligent, but when you're interacting with Lee, you, you're just like, this is just a guy I want to belly up to a bar with. Just a good guy. That's what QB means by that. And when he says belly up to a bar, he means that that's probably where you're going to find Lee if you're just out and about. <laughs> it will be in a bar. I did help manage a bar crawl on Saturday. So oh, yeah, put that true. in perspective, shall we? Or shall we not? Yeah, 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 sure. Um, I helped uh, my good friend and a friend of the show, Scott Williams from Love Camp Real, um, is starting an effort uh, he's calling Celebrate Seville, which is a variety of different uh, ventures, and one of them was a 90s-themed bar crawl. Um, we started at Cardinal Hall, went to Vitae, and then ended at Botanical, and really we, we were trying to get people together, not really just to drink, but really just to in, enjoy each other and play some good music, and we did that. We had uh, kids celebrating prom join in with us. We had, I think they were probably a couple in their 60s mm. that followed us for several stops and were dancing, having a good time, and that's really what it was about. People from all walks of life just celebrating the good parts of Seville. We know there's a lot of things we need to work on, but we're trying to celebrate some of the things that make Seville so great. Scott Williams, I love that. I would love to highlight that at any time on this network, my friend. You're a true ambassador of Central Virginia. Quentin and Lee, what has tickled your fancy or what has intrigued you of late? I mean, the first quarter's behind us. Um, we had Justin Ritter on the show on Wednesday. He's a closing attorney for businesses, so he helps, like, startups and small businesses come to market, lease negotiations, contract negotiations, buyouts, etc. He says some of his clients, best time ever, crushing it. Other, other clients, they're literally doing like the, the bankruptcy selling of assets here. So it seems like some are crushing. It seems like others are like, what's going on? Show us yours on that topic. Uh... I mean, the term adapt or die, I think, really resonated with a lot of businesses during COVID. And 
I think maybe we're starting to see that now. I mean, certainly the, the federal government was trying to help stimulate growth during the pandemic. Some of those efforts were successful. Many of them failed miserably, as we saw from a lot of the PPP funding scandal. But yeah, I think now you've seen this, Jerry. I, I see more businesses for sale through your network than I've ever seen. And I, just in talking to businesses, I think the pandemic has really changed how people view you know, what their worth is as a business owner. And I know that we had to adapt a lot of our uh, policies and how we do business at Claiborne. And you know, a lot of that was sort of scaling back and thinking, you know what, maybe we don't want to grow nation, nationwide. Maybe we want to just be the best tutoring company in Central Virginia. That seems to be a scale that we're happy with. Outside of that, it's really difficult to hire. We, we were all, the three of us were talking about that ahead of time, and I think that's a big part of, of what small businesses are struggling with. QB? I think we started talking about this in the pandemic. We, we talked a lot about coming out of the pandemic, we'd see a K-shaped recovery. And so I think you're seeing this play out in small business. And so... There are services that um, we spent two years being at home and buying homes so that we could stay at home and, and really changing how we socialize and the things that we do and that we invest money in. And so I think you're just seeing that K-shaped recovery continue to play out where different retails and, and office work and stuff has just shifted and small business and the market in total hasn't quite figured out where people are yet and how to bring stuff back to their doorstep. And it used to be we went consistently and constantly out to where the services were. And that has changed in terms of the percentage. I love going out. And if you look at the number of times I'm out in a month now versus before, it hasn't recovered. It's not the same. Some of that is, lack, is because there's fewer options or those options are more crowded, which I'm happy for them that they are. Um, but I think we're going to see this continue to play out for a while now. And I wonder if the, if the cat's out of the bag and it'll never really, I mean, you can't put, you can't change that and now it'll never really recover to pre-pandemic. And, and you sh we shouldn't expect that it should. This is what the, the adapt adaptation should include. And if you look back historically, it's not big rises that accelerate change, it's big drops. So whether it's economics or social change or whatnot, it's usually a big drop that accelerates change as opposed to a big rise. And so I think we're coming out on the tail end of that we're facing a recession in the last half of the year. It's probably already started. Yeah, and, 100%. Um, 100%. And, and there's, a, there's just a, a national stage and a local stage that is new to most of the world and most of the people that are within five miles of us. And so I think we're still seeing that change accelerate as people find their new niche. Help me understand this. Um, I love you guys because you have your hands, like I said, in a lot of stuff. This was the Q1 report. You were the former president of CAR, all right? We got $86.3 million in sales volume were lower for Q1 this year versus last year. How do we characterize the health here? Is this healthy, this market? And what we saw last year and the previous year, just this COVID anomaly? Like, is this the normal market, what's happening now, Quentin? 200 less units sold year over year? Yes. Uh, more, more about prices than units. So if you look at in the first quarter of this year versus last year, prices in the city of Charlottesville, are the median price is down 8%. And in the county of Albemarle, first quarter this year versus first quarter last year, the median price is down 
the median price across all markets, when you weigh in Fluvanna, uh, Green, Louisa, Nelson, is it's up, right? It, it's about even. Okay. It's up a little bit. Let, let's so call it a couple three, percent or something. Couple percent. Okay. It's up a couple percent, but it's about even. And so what we're seeing is a correction. If you trend the housing market over 50 years, 40 years, 30 years, the sustainable gain is between 2 and 3%. And every time we pop over 3%, it has a peak and it drops back down and comes back down to the, the 3% trend line. And th- that's what you're seeing happening. You know, in some ways, we had a bigger jump in Charlottesville and Albemarle County in prices. And now we're seeing the bigger decline, bringing us back to normal. Median across the country is 1.7% down. And this is the first time prices have dropped in since, I, I want to say, 2016, maybe earlier than that. It's been a long time since median price points have come down. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I, am, I like to always look at things in Charlottesville and in try to understand if it's a, it's a global trend. And so I, I was in Louisiana a few weeks ago uh, visiting my mom and my sister, and we were looking at houses for my mom to move into. And while the housing prices are definitely much cheaper, brand new, three-bedroom, 2,200-square-foot houses, you can get there for 210000 I remember thinking, goodness gracious, that is so cheap. And the realtor was like, this is pretty expensive, actually. She was like, we have low inventory and high interest rates. She was like, this, we, we, we have a housing crisis in, in Lafayette. And I'm thinking, this seems like this could be a global trend. And she told me that, you know, the, the housing affordability nationwide has basically been a problem since the 80s. Quentin, can you put that into perspective? Is that, is that true? Did, is that... It's been a problem since the 80s, but it, it really accelerated as we led up to the crash. Uh, we've underbuilt homes for a long time, and that margin has done nothing but grow. Real quick question. When you say underbuilt, it just hasn't kept up with population growth, right? We haven't built right. enough houses for right. the population growth. Okay. I mean, depending on who you talk to, we're, what, 3 to 5 million units nationwide under inventory? Nationwide. Yeah. And we're probably a good sixty to 100,000 in car and its surrounding footprint. That's a boatload. You know why that's a boatload? We had... 45 days ago, UVA said to us, and I'll get to, the, I'll get to the comments here. 45 days ago, UVA said to us that the uh, Biotech Institute, the new one, two to 3,000 new people coming to this area. Six-figure jobs, 24 to 36 months. So we're under inventory, and we have jobs coming. I want you to put in perspective how that could potentially impact classroom, academic performance, drive, achievement, Everything in that space and spectrum. Yeah, well, it's... Uh, let's see how to paint this in a good light. Um, it's going to change the demographic because what you're really doing is you're injecting resource-rich students into the classroom, which is going to further exacerbate the achievement gap. Most likely, the types of clients who are, are going to come in at, at really high-paying jobs are going to opt to put their students in a new community in an independent school. They're not going to roll the dice in public school. Um, I actually know 
uh, won't disclose the names. I know a couple of individuals who work at independent schools who are now going to opt to put their children into pub the public schools, either Charlottesville or Albemarle. So I think that as a nationwide average, our, our public schools are actually doing better than nationwide. Just as a local community, we've seen Albemarle and Charlottesville decline in terms of their performance year over year. And so I think somebody coming new to the community might hear that and think, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to take my chances. So I don't think it'll change it as, as much as you think. The, if they do decide to put their students in the public school, it's going to make it more difficult for under-resourced families to perform in the public school setting. How much of that do you think is a temporary after-effect of the pandemic? A lot. He would know the best. But well, I mean, and that's why I'm asking it with a question mark. I'm just curious, like, I have no intention of raising any more children, in part because I'm too old. You're, uh, and, no. it's, and, it's, uh, and it's so hard. Oh, my gosh. It's so hard. I mean, I mean birth, rate, thing birth rates are, are down, right? It's the hardest yeah. thing I've ever done by far. It's not even close. I mean, put, like, launching a business in perspective, this is like a 1,000x harder. Um, and then do the second one. He's got two kids. He knows exactly what. Well, it's the same reason I don't have pets. So because I had two daughters. I've done my part for the animal kingdom. Yeah. I'm. I'm not. I'm not going to do anymore. Boy, I really hope your daughters aren't watching. <laughs> <laughs> his nephew routinely watches when Quentin Beckham's on the show. What's his name? Is it Michael? Michael. Yeah, he routinely watches. The fact that I know that is crazy. Blake Hawthorne, his boy is watching. Is he yeah. in Cali right now? Yeah, Blake's in um, probably in Sacramento. Yeah. He says there's absolutely no inventory. 44% less available inventory nationally due to a multitude of factors. Blake's He's, wife is a realtor, and so he deals with this. We um, have... From what and I can yet, tell, and yet our inventory has doubled year over year. Quarter to quarter, our inventory has practically doubled here in the local area. From what I can tell, you have four LOs watching, loan officers on the program. Okay, uh, I see two home inspectors and two appraisers watching. A handful of KWA agents watching the program right now. I pay them. Are we okay? I'm choosing my words carefully here. Okay, because we're all in the supply chain. I'm certainly on the supply chain we call real estate. Okay, How, what, where are we at here? How do you characterize what's happening? Are we fragile right now? Is this fragile? Ask a better question. Is this economic? I don't know what you're asking. Okay, real estate, I would say UVA we know is number one from a driver of the economy in Central Virginia, 300,000 person market. UVA is number one. We know it's about $6 billion from the Weldon Cooper study on the defense sector. Defense sector is $1.2 billion. I would freaking love to know a study of what CAR does because I think you're right there with the defense sector with the $1.2 billion yearly impact. Here's a, a stat from CAR. $86 million less in sales, sales volume quarter over quarter, last quarter versus this quarter. I want to characterize or ask you this. How do you characterize the real estate economy here in Central Virginia? Is it fragile? Does it have momentum, tailwinds, hail, or headwinds? How do you look at it? I think it's correcting. Uh, you know, there's nothing about, I, I, I actually am applauding a lot of our quarter over quarter information. So as low as you might feel the inventory is, it's still improving. As terrible as you might feel the prices are, they're getting better. And one of the big issues with real estate accelerating is that it creates a log jam. You know, at, it, the, the narrower and deeper the river gets, the faster it flows, the more likely it is to drag things along and clog itself up. And that's what we've been experiencing for the last two years. 
And that, that narrow, deep bandwidth made housing way more inaccessible. As we see things start to broaden out and slow down, you have more opportunity for accessibility because now people that couldn't sell their home two years ago have an opportunity to sell their home because now they have a choice of where to go. And you're going to continue to see the inventory become larger. It's still too low. Like we're, A change of one year is not going to make up for the 20 years we've underbuilt homes. We have more permits for new housing than we've ever built, ever seen, and uh, 43% of those permits are for multifamily, townhomes and multifamily housing. You read the report. Um, you come, you did your homework, uh, dude. <laughs> so this is really, really good. The linchpin in a lot of this still lies with the localities and the municipal governments and how quickly they let that come to fruition and how easy they make it. I, here's an interesting, I want you to jump in here. Jamie Turner is on the advisory council at Woodbury Forest. Okay. He's watching now. He's got a comment specifically for you based on something that you said. Quit. If we have wealth sprinting to Central Virginia to live with affluence and resources, it's a 300,000 person market. We know people with bags of money are coming here. Is that not good for your business? Is that not good for your business? Is that not good for Woodbury Forest? Is that not good for Botanical? You mentioned Botanical. Botanical. Mm -hmm. Is that not good for Scotty Williams? Is that not good for small businesses that need new customers? Here's what he says, and then I'll get out of your way, because you're ready to go. I can tell. He says, um, I'm interested in Mr. Elberson's take on the disparities between men and women when it comes to career and educational successes. And he says, we're struggling with this at Woodbury, and multiple people are saying the affluence that's coming into this area is creating competition in the classroom that they did not anticipate with their youngster. All right. Um, so first comment is uh, injecting... Yeah, in injecting more wealth into the, an urban setting good for local businesses? Yes. I think as a community, we look at um, affordable housing and gentrification and, and, and making sure that we don't displace some of the, the workers in the community. And I think it's almost certainly bad for that. It's, it's already bad. I don't, as Quentin said... This is a t several decade long problem. There is not a single thing we could do in the course of a year to, to fix the entire problem. Now we can start to course correct, I think, and, and try to make things better, but if it's been happening for 30 years, there's nothing we can do now. So yeah, I think it's definitely good for my business. If more people are doing tutoring and test prep, that is probably a good measure of how people feel about the economy. Tutoring is a discretionary expense, right? If people are spending on that, they probably either feel good about the economy or they're immune from economic downturns. I, I guess there's certainly some, some individuals that that would, that would be good for. Inside of the classroom, students with more resources are always going to do better. We talk about this all the time. How do you bridge the achievement gap? You know, like there's, how do you make a test that takes resources out of this? I, I think that's impossible. A, a family with resources is always going to do better. You know, if I tell you, hey, Jerry, you've, let's say I give you $20 million, what are you going to do? 
you're going to dump a heavy portion of that into your kids, making sure that they have as many opportunities as possible, right? Well, I already, I mean, I don't you, mind, you, I don't mind even saying this, and I'll throw it back to you. Um, our son is a rising kindergartner, and this summer, we're fortunate in that once a week for 45 minutes, he's going to work with a third grade teacher who, I'm not going to say who it is, retired from private school teaching and now runs a tutoring business where she's charging 75 bucks an hour to work with kindergartners, first graders, second graders, and third graders. And all she does is do that. Yeah. She's like, I don't want to do teaching anymore. I want to do 75 bucks an hour and work with these kids. He's going to do it once a week. And and as as your your kids get older, if I said, okay, well, we're not going to do standardized testing anymore. Are you going to just put less resources? Are you going to go out and buy a new car? Or are you just going to find other ways to resource your kid? course you're just right you're just so i think that it's going to be more competitive in in the classroom and from a capitalistic mindset that's that's a good thing right great then the the system will equilibrate and you know the students who are supposed to perform better will perform better but research has shown that the more disparity that you have in um in resources in a classroom, the harder it is to make progress because the teacher is trying to teach to the within one standard deviation, and the farther that's spread, the more content and the more difficult it is for them. Because to on either end, somebody's either bored or left behind. Yeah, so it's so it's it makes it much more difficult, especially at a place like I mean Woodbury Forest. You'd think, wow, all these families have resources, <laughs> but that's not the case. Woodbury Forest offers scholarships and. You know, parents think Woodbury Force is a great school. Let's just let's spend all of our discretionary income to send our kids there. And and some billionaires may say, "Ah, eh, we'll send it." I like I like the campus. It's a beautiful campus. It really is. It is a there. beautiful campus. It looks like a college campus. Yes. Yeah. You so, see helicopters landing at Woodbury from time to time, dropping students off legitimately. Yeah. Legitimately. It's it, so I think it, that was a long-winded answer to say yes. It's good for the economy, good for tutoring business. Probably not great for classroom settings, either public school or. So I want to push back on your economy sentence a little bit. Okay. Because I I think as you talk about disparity in resources, disparity in economic stuff also has a problem. So um, Amazon just opened a fulfillment center over the mountain. Yeah. Fishersville, I believe. Fishersville. Yeah. Two hundred jobs to start, leading up to five. Hershey and Fluvanna still trying to hire people, and we do have these mainstays of economic flow with UVA and government contractors and military and NGIC and that sort of thing. Those only create the potential for growth. They don't necessarily create growth because no matter how much money you make, uh, I buy expensive cars, but it's still only one car from one dealer in town. I have a house, I buy one mattress and I buy two pillows and three pairs of jeans will do me. If you, you frequent really, a lot of establishments, you go to restaurants, you spend a lot I of time. I do, in, but it's still only me. Mm-hmm. It's still only me. And what's true nationally is also true here in that if you want to have a thriving economy, both local and chains and everybody else, you need a strong middle class. Because what you need is a volume, right? So when we don't have volume, we don't have that equilibrium between growth and consumer and 63% of our economy, both locally and nationally, is consumerism. So as you start to shift the spectrum, we still have all the people that aren't working making six-figure incomes, 
they just now are spending so much money on housing and transportation that they can no longer support small businesses in the local economy. And it makes a, a huge difference. It makes an enormous difference to the total vibrancy, growth, and thriving of any economy of any size. And so often that disparity in resources plays out economically in a way that can continue to be self-fulfilling. And we, we have to have a good spread of economic incomes and uh, resources and retail for all varieties of economy if we're going to continue to maintain a good growth and, and a good vibrant area. A thousand percent. And here's the problem. He's, he, both you guys are right. With new people sprinting here, they're cannibalizing the limited inventory that we have in this market, which is then pushing folks that are on the financial margin away from the epicenter of employment. And as they get pushed away from the epicenter of employment, they're determining, do, is it worth my time to drive to the city to take this $15 an hour job, or do I do something completely different? So a lot of these small businesses that are like, oh my gosh, all these wealthy people are coming here, it's great for my business, the collateral damage of the wealth moving here is they're taking the housing stock away from the people that will work the $15 an hour jobs, which are paramount to the small business owner's success, which is the point Beckham's making here. We're, we're, we're losing the middle and, and, and lower middle class and upper lower class that are staffing the small businesses. And the folks that I see that are the most prepar- precarious predicament, I'll get out of y'all's way here, are the folks that rely on a lot of people at that entry price point for labor. Uh, interesting. Our, our uh, unemployment ticked up just a touch. We're still better than any you know, national or state averages. Uh, 3% or something or 4%? <sighs> I would have to look. I want to say we're at 2.6 here in the car footprint. Um, I can tell you here. Neil Williamson would know, too. He's watching the program right now. I think that's... I, think I want to say is, we're 2.6. It is 2.6, exactly. Uh, second biggest loser in jobs. Hospitality and service industry. So pandemic ended. Restaurants opened. They brought back staff as best they could. Many staff had moved on, and it got harder and harder to hire. If you're talking to local business owner restaurateurs, one of their continuing ongoing nightmares is they can't put staff in front of clients. Nursing, they, nursing shortage too, right? Not done. And, and how many of these wealthy people are going to have bad service or no service at a restaurant before they stop going? And if you were to track the gains in this, let's just talk about restaurants in Charlottesville, lots of return to work and gains post-pandemic, way fewer restaurants. And not many prospects for them reopening. Thousand percent. In fact, in fact, more closing soon. Uh, more closing it, soon. Yeah. Riverside Village just got a waiver from Alma County Board of Supervisors because part of their neighborhood development plan was that they would have eight thousand square feet of commercial and retail, and they can't fill it. They can't fill eight thousand square feet. Mm-hmm. And so they actually got a waiver to reduce the square footage of commercial and retail they have to have so that all that empty space next to grit coffee no longer prevents them from continuing their development. What do you think, Lee? Well, I'm curious if that's... I agree with all of Quentin's point. I'm curious if you think that's the primary factor of why we're having trouble finding finding workers for $15 an hour, as you say. I think it, we can't find labor because we don't have the housing for it that's affordable to... To, offset, to, to, to say, here's 15 bucks an hour. 15 bucks an hour is 30 grand. 15 bucks an hour is 30K. Right? Yeah. What, what housing can accommodate a 15... 15- I, I, I agree with that. I, I would say, has the increase or 
has the increase in housing unaffordably tracked with the drop in available like workers not not working those $15 an hour jobs I would say that the drop in workers has been more. I don't know what the other effects are, and I guess that's what I'm asking. What, sort are, of what a, are the other? I would tell you it's an economic Krebs cycle. You're familiar with the Krebs yeah. cycle. Um, so is it directly Thermodynamics. there? Thermodynamics. Michael Beckham, hello. We were just talking about you. Is it directly there? No, it's just two steps away. So um, if I am the $15 an hour worker, and I can't even find an apartment that's three bedrooms for me, my other half, and our two kids, I have to move further away. Now, in addition to the rent that's hard for me to make already, I've added a transportation cost. Right. Now we've come to what we call brittle poverty. So not poor. I'm working. I'm paying all my bills. But I'm one bad transition, transmission failure. I'm one car accident, mm -hmm. one needing to replace four tires away from not being able to make that trip. As we continue to make housing unaffordable where the jobs are, and as we push people out, eventually those, you have to pay more money to get them in. We're now in what we call the wage price spiral of inflation. And in, a, in an economy our size, that's not a supportable continuing thing. There is because no... Because there's not enough customers. There, there's that's not what enough, he's saying. There's not enough staff. There's not enough customers. There's not enough housing. Yeah. And even if there is housing and there is customer base... If you don't have accessibility of the employees to get there and serve it, right. that business dies. When was the last time you took the train from Waynesboro? Never. Oh, there isn't one. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I think about at night right there. Because I, we serve a small This businesses. is what you think about it. I night? do. I know. It's so heavy. I know. My wife is like, stop thinking about this. this is I need her phone number. There's got to be a way to change what you think about it. <laughs> help me. Please help me. I, I talk to people professionally about this. Throw this to you here. If, if, if some of our favorite places do, do not get the staff to keep their business alive, they're going to have to pivot in some capacity. Some are going to close. Others are going to figure this out. Maybe the way you figure it out is what Brazos is doing at Barracks Road, where it's more pick up at the window like they did at Ix, where initially the plan was going to be more table service. Now it's more pick up at the window because they don't have the front of the house staff to do the table service here. So, like, what's the role of the technology? What's the role of the innovation? Is it impossible or unfair to say that a small business owner who's just trying to keep their lights on is going to be able to pivot to kiosks and AI and chat GBT and mobile apps and curbside pickup? Or is that what we got to do? I think part of this is that, yeah, I mean, the if they can't find the staff for the front of house, that is certainly a, an issue, but maybe they're just also serving what customers have now wanted, right? As, as Quentin said, post-pandemic, not everybody wants to go out and just sit in a restaurant, right? They're either too busy or they don't want to bother with it, and so they would prefer pickup. So, I, you know, I think it's, it's two-sided coin, right? Like, if, if the customers aren't asking for it, then that's part of the, the business that you're not able to serve, and that's why it's hard for you to be able to pay your wait staff what it takes to be able to retain them. I agree, except I don't think it's even. Consumers determine the services we offer, 
but the services offered determine where consumers go. And I think in this particular case, it's more of services offering than it is consumer-driven. There's a lot of things that are very consumer-driven. Most of the changes in real estate and how we practice as brokers and agents, very consumer-driven right now. And I think if anybody in real estate is watching, don't miss the boat that it's all about the consumer. Uh, because that is, that is the thing that if you want to be ahead of the curve, you've got to be focusing on. But there's also um, there's a, there's a derivation of what kind of consumer we create by what's available. Yep. Restaurants right now are full, but we have 45% of the restaurants we used to. There you go. Yep. And the dining room shrunk. And the dining Since room COVID. shrunk. Yeah, there it is right there. So, and was that a market shift that needed to happen? Maybe, maybe the locally, pandemic just pushed that along. Locally, probably yes, you would but say. It, but it also means that it, for that earner slice, jobs diminished. Um, and we no longer have an opportunity for those people. There has been some shifting. There have been people in those slices that found better work. Things that like there's been the teachers that have gone to tutoring. It's better work. They don't have to deal with all the BS that it means to be a Bureaucracy. public school teacher right now, um, where everything is a hassle and you got to watch every word you say and be super super careful all the time. Uh, I would hate to work in that environment. It would feel like being an elected official. Um, Tough to find even elected officials now. Nobody wants to serve on the school board. That's so, so there has been some shift, but I would wager that people that you're looking to hire don't have that hard of a, a life in, in the job that you're trying to hire them into. I mean, they have to tolerate you, and so you know there's that. But Lee's very likable. But I was about to say, I would ask you to... Your beautiful wife someone. says, great shirt, Lee. Yeah, she oh, Alex. She's yeah. watching right now. Yeah. Uh, Judy Savage Jones says, I'm watching. She's a retired KWA. Judy. Um, Kim Cornelius Spitz Miller. Michael Beckham. Hello. Michael Sargent. Hello. And welcome to the program. Got the weekly newspaper on the program uh, watching the show here. So, gentlemen, I'll throw this to you here. Um, you feeling pretty good about where we're heading for the back half of the year? We're May 19th. Right? We're at the halfway marker. Man. Are you feeling, uh, this is the, where the bear sometimes comes out. I think he's playing the role of the bull, um, Quinn Beckham. Uh, I mean, he, uh, he dared say the R words, so uh, he's, even the, the, the bull are, isn't feeling too bullish. Are we talking R word now with teams, with our teams and uh, the people we encounter? Or, or as people say, Central Virginia, UVA, Charlottesville, protected from the R word here? $1.2 billion defense sector yearly impact, $6 billion UVA impact on Central Virginia. We don't know what CAR is. I would love to see what CAR's impact is I, I, on Central Virginia. I would, I would also tell you that these numbers you're throwing out, all they're accurate, mostly, are also just potential right. impact on the economy, not actual. And, and we still, I, I, I still want to push back that large sums of money yeah. are not good indicators of how a local economy is going to do because what happens mostly with large sums of money, they sit there becoming larger sums of money. They don't fuel or provide any economic or social utility. They sit there doing, doing a next to nothing. In fact, that's the problem when you have too much of a gap. It's not, that, it's not that rich people take over and spend too much. It's that they don't spend enough because they're still only consuming one household's worth of goods. It could be a big household, 
square footage wise, but they don't power the economy in the same way as middle class do and lower middle class when you provide opportunity for them to participate in the lower so based on that take, in the you're, local economy. Based on that take, you're a little nervous then. I'm not I'm not nervous because I am not surprised. Okay. When when I used to see patients and a seventy five year old came in with atrial fibrillation, I was not surprised. I didn't give him a big card and a slice of cake like he'd achieved something. But, you know, there are things that shouldn't be surprising. If you want local business and small business to thrive, you must have a thriving middle class to go visit them. And the longer we let disparities happen, that's bad. Am I happy that we're going to go into a recession? Not necessarily. On the other hand... The economy has really just worked really, really hard. And if you run a marathon, there's a good chance you're in bed the next day, and it's time for us to go to bed. And, and until that happens, you're, you don't even have an opportunity for a correction because there's no magic thing. There's no new technology or something that's suddenly going to pump up the economy for the middle class. Uh, quick sidebar, just a trivia question. Have you ever run a marathon? No. Okay. Neither have I. Have but you? I have. Yeah. Okay. You I did. did. I, I, the right. Richmond Marathon is a, an amazing marathon. Anyway, I, I'll, uh, I'll. I did ride 425 miles over four and a half days on a non-electric bike. Ooh, I was about to say I could do that on an electric bike. Wow, that's that's legit. It, California? Nope. Oh no, we went from uh, Burlington, Vermont, to Portland, Maine. Oh, that's pretty. Um, I was going to say that I am also not nervous, but here is my bull hat. I think. The local economy and and just the United States in general is pretty resilient, so that's why I'm not nervous about us entering in a recession. I do think that there there's going to be some attrition in businesses. There's not anything we can do about that. Of all the entrepreneurs, hundreds of entrepreneurs I've met in Charlottesville, they are very resilient, and pivot is the name of the game for small businesses. I think... Larger businesses have a much more difficult time pivoting, and long-standing businesses like Claiborne, we've been doing the same thing for over a decade. It's much harder to turn that ship because you have these ideas of what the business should be, and you're less likely to pivot. So I think I'm... I think I, it's a lot harder now to start a business in 2023 than it was before COVID. I think if you're launching a business in 2023, you have a much more difficult environment locally in central virginia than you did in 2019 uh i would say that's uh, i i would push back on that and say that if you're jumping off and starting a business as your sole source of income then that's true of many which is of the, what a business is that would be a side hustle you're well that's but that you can start a business as a side hustle right. i think that's if I was a single man starting a business, I was like, cool, I'm just going to start this and this is going to be my whole source of income. That's what you I know did. what? I'll eat ramen noodles for I a did. month and I'll do that. That's fine. Yeah. If you're starting a business in your 30s and you already have kids, it makes a lot more sense to start as a side hustle. A lot of businesses that start say, hey, I have a pretty stable job at UVA and I'm going to start this as a side hustle, and I'm going to determine a point at which I, this can be my full hustle. If ever, maybe this will always be a side hustle. And I think in, with that respect, then it's, a lot, it's not as difficult as you're painting it. But if you're saying that you're framing it and saying you have to start a business and that's going to be your sole source of income, 
than what you're saying might be true. Um, for Quentin Beckham specifically, this question's come on the feed from Michelle. Jerry, ask the question you asked the other panelists about rates dropping and what that could do to the real estate ecosystem. So here's how I phrased the question to the other ones. Michelle who? Michelle Clatter, Clatterback? Is that right, Michelle? Clatterback? She says this. Ask the question that I asked about rates dropping. So I will. This is the question I have. Are you ready for this? If rates drop to the fours and we get more buyers jumping in the mix, how does that impact things locally? Uh, rates aren't going to drop to the fours. Scotty Mo thinks high fours by the end of the year. Uh, I would tell you fives. Okay. Although I suppose there's places where those over, they're close enough as to not matter. Um, I would tell you fives. Um, I think inventory is still going to be the restriction. So even with when rates were two, what was the price? And who could qualify for those houses? And so inventory is still going to be the restriction. And until we start creating inventory at a faster pace than we need it, this is a spiral that's slowing down a little bit, but still spiraling and certainly not going the other direction. So it will be helpful for buyers when those rates go down. But if there's a limited inventory, there's still a limited inventory. I'm happy with all the signs I'm seeing in the quarterly report. I'm happy about prices coming down. I'm happy that our inventory has doubled, even though the raw number is smaller than we would like it to be. These are all things that are good for the housing market and for our local economy in total in terms of housing, because for most of Charlottesville and the surrounding areas, uh, housing is the big cost and is the big issue. And it is an issue that can not just be expensive by itself, but create others when you have to move further and further away from where you work speaks back to resourcing. All of these things for slowing down are, I think, going to make it less difficult for most of our population, and it's still not going to fix the primary issue in that we don't have dense enough housing close to works, we don't have enough development land available, and the process from permit to key is too long. Quentin Beckham, guys. Um, this comment comes in, and, and Michelle, you're right. I do know your son from uh, Pickleball. Thank you for leaving that comment. Um, Lee, any take that you want to offer on uh, the bank uh, banking issues of late? Justin Ritter on the show on Wednesday highlighted how some local banks, the publicly traded ones, how their market cap has really shrunk a lot since First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank um, had their runs. Maybe we talk financing if you want to go down that road. I really want to pick your brain, though, on AI, chat GBT, and your take on something in that space because I know you have something to offer there. Love that. Yeah, I've been on chat GBT since it's Does chat GBT scare you or does this, is this, I mean, let's embrace it. Let's rock and roll. Do you want okay. to talk, any, any of those two? Okay. Um, uh, financing is a little outside of, of my area of expertise. I would say in the last year, I think the speculation bubble on technology has has burst, and I think um, maybe that's you know speculating on on what small banks can actually do, and and, and the banking sector does when when they have um, finance resources and and where they invest it. I think you know you, when you scrutinize it and you look at. Um, Silicon Valley Bank, and it's like, oh gosh, like why did they do this and why did they do this? I don't know. Maybe was it just a, a number of unfortunate issues that happened to them that weren't 
like weren't practices that the other banks weren't doing anyway. And I think the banking sector is hopefully adapting and thinking about those practices, but it's not surprising that when there is a catastrophe like that, that the market cap will shrink. You know, it happened with, with tech last year, I think, when... You Bank of the James, Virginia National, um, Blue Ridge Bank, um, look at their market cap, all has diminished quite a bit since this, these runs of these uh, big banks. Uh, Q, I, Q, I don't know if you want to touch this at all. I think we forget that uh, banking is an inherently fragile industry. And, and so a lot of what seemed like secure, safe investments four years ago, it's no longer true. And so depending on the length and the, the amount of investment regional banks have, that's problematic. I think if we do have, yes, we're seeing market cap shrinks, and, and I don't think that's done yet. I think if, if you're looking for what's going to be the next problem for a regional bank, it's, it's a lot of the commercial crash. Uh, we have a lot of mostly empty buildings that are loans that are held locally by regional banks, and the ability to remortgage those is really, really limited right now in a way that that land landlords and building owners can can manage. Justin said the same thing. That's so, a very good point. So if you're if you're looking for yes, we need to continue fighting inflation, and the Feds probably are not going to raise the rate again, no matter what they say. But they have to keep saying that so that we don't worry too much. Um, or spend too much. If you're looking for the next thing that would be dramatic um, outside of a new war or a participation in some sort of police action, it, it would be that, that regional banking crisis. Lee Alberson? I don't have anything to add to that. I'm, I was already thinking about Chad GPT. I can't wait. I, I, I see the wheels turning. Yeah. Um, so Chad GPT, I think, is just the the most popular of language models we've there been, have been language models around for a decade i think it what has happened here has has happened before you know i think when uh the idea of autonomous vehicles first hit the public eye there was many people of our generation that were surprised that it, it came as fast as it did because it, it sounded like it was the stories of of science fiction. Wow, we're going to have these self-driving cars. Well, self-driving cars have kind of lost almost all of their market cap. Pretty much everybody but Tesla has removed almost all of their financing in in full self-driving. Uber sold off its shares. Cruise has dropped theirs by like 75%. Tesla pulled theirs off the market several times in the last year and... They, I think, are putting it back in 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 a, like a couple of weeks. They say, but I think when you when when a new technology hits, you you hit that cycle where all the investors are in. It's very exciting and it's scary because it's going to disrupt the market. Right? Uber, where are all these Uber drivers going to go? Now with ChatGPT, you have this language model that it essentially can prepare. Question, prepare answers to questions of varying degrees of difficulty, right? If I want to come on the show and I say, hey, um, how do I answer these really complicated questions about real estate? It can, it can give me answers on a very high level. If I ask it for something about localized, the car report, it doesn't know anything about that. It's based on very old data. So it can give you very high-level answers. 
But what it's not going to do is it's not going to be able to really add much about anything that's going to require empathy, which is like equity and inclusion and, and things of that lens. So I think the jobs that it will displace are going to be jobs that um, were probably going to be displaced anyway. Those sort of jobs are, are jobs that um, were, need to be automated. So, for instance, at the, for the tutoring industry, what can like if parents are going to ask us questions about hey what is like what's a timeline for testing what's this um, that's stuff that I have to answer all the time that any computer can answer if they're going to tell me hey my student's ADHD and really doesn't like this teacher what's what's the best strategy that's going to require some empathy and so I think that those sort of um, though any job that requires empathy. It is not going to be easily replaced by a language model. Does that make sense? Oh, perfect sense. Why? Yeah. Just out of curiosity, self-driving cars. You brought them up. Why the lack of momentum? You think? Take Cruise, Cruise for to be specific. Much harder problem than they anticipated. You know, I think the every like the initial piece of like being able to look at standard situations on a highway and say we're going seventy miles an hour look far enough ahead and, and tell me where I need to turn and, and stay inside my lane and, and slow down and, and, and be careful for, you know, just be careful for the, the cars around us. Anything in a, in a city or a complicated intersection, imagine an intersection that the lanes change, such as hydraulic, right? You're, you're, at, the, you're at that intersection, it's like they move over when you get to Trader Joe's by like almost an entire lane. A car doesn't know that. There's no lines. There's nothing to guide it. it you know, anything that's, that's abnormal, which is a lot of our intersections, it's really difficult to understand all those permutations. And a vehicle has to take liability. When you sign Tesla's, um, their, their end-user license agreement, if the car gets into an accident when you're under full self-driving, Level of his level four, it's the car is responsible. Now, if they back it off to level two or three, the human is responsible. So, if I have to drive anyway, why on earth, like, would I pay for it? Why would I pay for it, right? And so, I think that it was a harder problem to solve, and it didn't completely display. Like for Uber, if it's not going to replace the driver, then what? What is the point? It's making it a little bit easier. Quentin probably knows a lot more about this than I do, and so I would love to hear That's his a great take. I was stuck looking up empathy uh, just to get a definition of it. <laughs> so uh, you lost me after that. I think Quentin has empathy. Um, it's in a jar. I home. love Quentin. He's the best. He's a very empathetic, man. Judah's jo laughing over here. I think, I think everything you said is correct, and I think part of why it's failing is because it just didn't live up to the professed dream on the side of the consumer. Um, Tesla said we'd have full self-driving cars for 2020. I, I had a Model S Plaid with all the full self-driving features, signed up for it, signed up for the beta, which I had briefly before my driving score went too, long, too low and they took it away from me because um, I accelerate too quickly, apparently. Is that true? Um, that's yeah. true. Really? Wow. That is absolutely true. And it was downright frightening. And so I think... Um, what? The car driving by itself? Much of it. So, like, yeah. on a freeway where it's doing stuff much like Volvo has done for years, where it's just basically keeping you in the lane yeah. and not, not running into the car ahead of you, 
I think that's pretty standard, and a lot of cars are doing that, doing that well right now. City driving and coming up to a stop sign, which was fun to play around with, um, as a practical matter, I, I don't know that AI for driving cars is anywhere near a place where it can react, respond, and be good where non-AI cars exist. It's just not going to work unless everybody's on this some sort of pattern and software that is uniform because humans are amazingly ununiform. And much like swinging a bat, we, we do things in a way that is subconscious as opposed to conscious. And that's impossible to train. I can't tell you how to ride a bike. I mean, I can. But I can't in a meaningful way explain to you how to ride a bike. I need to put you on and give you some colloquialisms and shove you along and then let go when you're not noticing. And your body figures it out. Driving, a lot of driving is that sort of reflexive stuff. And so to write it out in code and get a, get a system that responds appropriately is just really, really difficult. And we're not leave, living up to the sci-fi dreams that, that the consumer wants. Do we see a... Real uh, quick sidebar there. Interesting yeah. you mentioned the riding a bike thing. Uh, actually, I do know somebody that, uh, did, that wrote How to Ride a Bike. At University of Maryland, he wrote an entire thesis. It was an 88-page thesis on how, to, on how to write about it. And the complexities and, of trying to explain something that you have to experience and how you take it for granted. It's like, oh, just take balance. What is balance? Is it left-right balance? Is it this forward balance? And why is it better when I'm moving than when I'm going slow? Like, <laughs> yeah. it, well, what's up with that? Yeah, yeah you explain con- concepts like momentum. So anyway, yeah, I think that... That's interesting. I think a lot of things, I think a lot of life, actually, more so than we're willing to admit, by the time we explain how to do it, that knowledge is no longer transferable. And so, you know, children, toddlers, need to fall about 10,000 times, and that's how the small part of your brain figures out balance. It was like, oh, this doesn't work. That hurt. I probably shouldn't do that again. And then the next time they come across a different obstacle, they try the next thing. That doesn't work. We're more cataloging failures and learning how to avoid them which is a great Warren Buffett phrase, by the way. Just, you know, there's no secret to doing well. Just avoid failing. Um, And that's a lot of how we learn. And we're in a society that expects zero failure. So we're expecting self-driving cars and healthcare to be perfect. Right. And they're never going to reach that that level of productivity. How about AI and real estate? Have you thought about that? Where we'll see it? There's, there's a lot of, of chat GPT work going on in real estate that is very, very effective. And I think there are ways that we're already using algorithms to better put things in front of consumers. Supplement you, your job, right? But, you know, there's, there's this argument going on between um, an a agent-enabled technology versus a technology-enabled agent. Mm. And, and I think a lot of where we're seeing this shift to consumerism is uh, the power of the consumer is, is that it's no longer about the agent. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, agents, it's not about you. It mm-hmm. really is about the consumers. Many of you are amazing, but it's still about the consumers. And that relationship between a technology-enabled agent to meet all of the big circle of things that clients really, really need in a real estate transaction. I love it. Yeah, I think that that hits on something important. You know, a lot of the the doom scrolling that happens in AI is like your job is going to be replaced, right? Everybody's like, "Hey, I've heard this tutoring platform is all AI." I think we need to think about it as it's it should be meant to supplement what we do and, and empower us all do better instead of it's going to replace your job because yeah, I'm still I'm still a fan of Stephen Hawking. Like the biggest threat to humanity is AI. 
I mean, uh, the godfather of AI at Google just quit. I mean, we talked about this, Judah. He told everybody in America, he's like... I wouldn't say he's the godfather, but yeah, he created... Uh, he's worried that... He's well, one of the forefathers. He's, he's worried that assuming- artificial intelligence is... One of the questions that was asked by that AI was, will you consider my feelings when asking me what to do? Right? That's, a, that's an alarming question. Now, it, did it actually have sentience or... I mean, is it just something that it knew would invoke a reaction amongst us, right? You, you program this thing to just say things randomly. Maybe Quentin's car one time avoids an accident that no other human could have avoided, but maybe it doesn't know the difference between somebody walking across um, an intersection with a phone and somebody walking across an intersection without a phone, right? I think that there's so many different... Uh, levels to this, and so I think some of the some of the concerns raised by the the Google um, AI programmer were a little bit alarmist. You thought alarmist, isn't that the mm-hmm. the uh, the trolley lever experiment? You're you're in a trolley, mm-hmm. you've got control of the lever, and how many people are going to die is up to you, but somebody's going to die, and who do you choose? There's many different variations of. Wow, the trolley experiment. Wait, what? In under what context are we using the trolley experiment for? I I, I don't know. I just went straight to apocalyptic AI. Okay. <laughs> and how? Oh, do we, okay. So and all right, Sarah Forch, feelings hello. and are they made up feelings or are they real feelings? Well, now that is that's another question for yeah for specifically how you want AI to make decisions, right? So. Um, if you're in the car, does it does it hold the driver primary no matter what? Mm-hmm. At what point does it sacrifice the driver to yeah. save the children crossing the street? There's there's four people in in a car, and there's somebody going across the street. Either it has to drive the car off of the the cliff and kill all four people inside, or it has to kill the pedestrian. What should the the AI do? Right, like that's that's part of the question. Okay, well maybe you save the four people. Now what if it's just one and one, right? Or what if it's one and two? Right. Is the AI not primarily responsible to its owner? So, in, and here's where humanity comes in. Is it in. not? All of us hearing this You're story, paying for the AI. Sure. Okay, now... I want a way to achieve both. Oh. And I don't think behind we can the wheel, we immediately believe we achieve both. We don't like these parameters that it's one or the other. What's the three things you use the phrase often in remodeling? It can be fast, cheap, and what? What are the three things you can do, Judah? Fast, cheap, and bad. No, uh, quality, speed, and uh, and low price. Yeah, you can have quality, speed, and low price with the project. You can pick two of them. Yeah. But not get all three. Isn't that the same thing with the AI? This, I mean, I how think, can I the AI? There's, there's a there's a there's some principle that like you you can have three things and you can only choose two. I, I forgot what it is. Right, right. I mean, I mean, are we asking too much of the AI? I think I think so. Yeah. I, well, I, I mean, this I, is going to get worse. This conversation. We're all going to be like new cycle to death when it comes to this topic. We realize that, right? We got this a lot. So my wife bought a Tesla early this year, and, and some, which one? Which one? She bought a, a Model Y. Okay. So it's, it's Wanda. Sort of the, it's right it's out the hybrid. Front. So yeah, it's right out front. Okay. Her name is the the car's name is Wanda. Wanda. Uh, hello, people Wanda. Keep telling me when I ask them when they ask me about full self driving, they say I heard a Tesla killed a person, and I say. Yeah, that's probably uh, the, the self, full self driving has probably killed many people. Was your response? I heard a Chevy killed a person. Yeah, I heard well, a Ford or, or just a like statistically speaking, humans still are the primary cause of 
of like Tesla deaths than 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 full self driving. Sure. So of course. I think it's it's progress, but it's you know it's it's probably related to why a lot of people get stressed out about airplanes. You know, it's like oh well, I'm not the one driving, right? Like when it's it's in somebody else's or something else's hands, it's different than when you're the person driving, right? Yeah. Once I get on that plane and sit down, my stress just melts. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's yeah. the cocktail in front of you. That's the trick in front of you. I have done everything in my control. I've done my job. My, my work is done. I don't have anything else to do until we get off the plane. Nora Gaffney, it. welcome to the program. She's watching the show. That might be the, uh, what's the drink you choose on the airplane? Is it a, is it a Jack and Coke? Or just probably bourbon on the Quentin, rocks. Quentin morning. likes just, just straight bourbon. He doesn't in the like morning, I ha- if it's a morning flight, I have a screwdriver. Oh, a screwdriver's great. Great, yeah. Uh, usually a glass of wine C, is good for me. You know? I mean, yeah. th- that's the thing. When you have the Bloody Mary, it's like I'm actually eating vegetables here. And if you're really nice, they'll, they'll give you your bourbon drink and set down some unopened bottles so that you can just self-serve or take them off the plane with you. <laughs> Do we still have time left on the show? Plenty of show? time. Okay, all right. So uh, I'm going to frame. Plenty of time. The, we talked about this a little bit ahead Love of time. Love you guys. I had a client this week uh, pose a question to me and say, my daughter's very hardworking, mm. but have you noticed that? Oh God! <laughs> Why are you? Are, you're already upset about this. I, I feel like this is a good question. It I like this a question. Lot of good, we okay. talked about this in so the pre-production she, she meeting. Said, yeah, she said, "Does it seem like millennials and centennials and, and the younger generation has a different work ethic than we do?" And I thought that was a good way to phrase it because it's not like worse or better. Well, I think the implication was it's a, it's a worse work ethic. Okay. But she said different. She was very diplomatic about it, and she said her, her daughter was very hardworking. And I said, yes, I think it's different. I know why. Um, and I propose that there are three primary <laughs> factors in my mind. This is my opinion. I think, number one, well, it, number one for the sake of this show okay. is... Affordable housing. Oh. The American dream has has changed a bit. It's not as it's not like you will work, you will get a house, you will have a family. Um, the having a family that much has changed. You know, um, divorce rates are higher. I think so. Affordable housing number one. I think number two. You know, part of working hard forty or fifty years ago was hey, you know what? I can go to college. This college degree will earn me more. college degrees are more ubiquitous now than they've ever been and so it doesn't mean the same you graduate from college and you're working a $15 an hour job plus the debt so I think those two factors the third one this is you're going to be super shocked that I say this I think social media um, has changed has changed the work ethic and I think it's it's you know when I hear something crazy on that it's 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 a broad it's a broad term. Anything from YouTube to TikTok. I think, I think it has changed the work. I think. I, I think keeping this to <laughs> things that they have studied and they have found, um, people who use social media more are more inclined to overspend on things that are not related to saving and um, saving up for a house. So I think yes, the work ethic has changed because what they're working for is is different than what we were working for when we were a kid. That, those are my claims, and I'm, I know Quentin's going to refute all of them. So That's not true. Okay. We have like eight minutes left. I'm not even sure I can get into this with you. <laughs> you can go anywhere you want. 
Um, I, I also do think, you agree with any of my points? Let's start there. I agree that things have changed. <laughs> um, I do believe social media is the devil. I missed some of it because I was posting and answering a text. Um, so I <laughs> while doing the show, well I missed while doing the show. I think social media is the devil. Yeah. And while I was using it, yeah. Um, and I, I also just believe generationally goals have changed based on availability. So at, as we've moved from becoming like the industrial manufacturing capital of the world over the last sixty to hundred years to a really service-oriented industry, we've really focused people on experiences versus stuff. And so you're seeing a lot more um, value placed on the opportunity to have experiences versus stuff, something that I don't necessarily disagree with. And we've moved, as we've limited the upward mobility of generations, every generation a little less available, we have less upward mobility than the United Kingdom, a company, a, a, a nation that still has a, a aristocracy, um, then you have to find other things to do. You know, you, you have to have a different goal if you realize that certain doors have just been shut to you that have nothing to do with you. And so you have to find different goals. So I, I resist the notion that there's this generation of coffee shop misanthropes that are just lazy and have no drive. There are coffee shop misanthropes that are just lazy and have no drive. They're just not necessarily an entire generation, nor are they limited to that generation. And we have to be realistic about, you know, if, you're, if you just graduated college last year, what are your opportunities for the next 10 years? And is the dream of home ownership really available to you in light of interest rates, prices, no, it's your not. potential no, wage, it's and your it, student debt. It's not. Compared to 50 years ago. So definitely. am I willing to hunker down and save every penny and eat ramen for 10 years so that I can buy a home, or am I going to take some off and, and, and go travel? So it's exacerbating, the, it's exacerbating the issue. Yes, you could, but... It is increasing the proclivity. I'm hesitant to call it an issue. It's just the way the world is right now. And, and, and so until hmm. there is a change where a door opens... I'm not going to be the old guy. I'm not a boomer, but I'm still kind of old. Uh, I'm not going to be the old guy trying to push people through a door that's not open. Mm -hmm. That's a fair point. I feel like that's, you're right. We, when you say it's changed and the negative connotation on, yeah, their work ethic is not what mine is. Yes, that is true. And I'm saying, yeah, it's because you're not working hard enough or you're not trying to do the things that I did. And I guess framing it in, that's it's so much harder that I would I make that same decision now if I was being raised now than I would have 20 years ago and the answer is probably no I would there's make definitely different a different relationship between employees and the employer but there's that relationship is also different from the employer we were talking about this before the show started uh, who do you know anymore that doesn't work for UVA that works for one co company for 30 years and retires and they take care of them the whole time. The, those opportunities are, are incredibly more limited than they used to be. Mm -hmm. And you're often at a Is company... Is that the role of the employer to do now? I'm Does not, the employer not, have to do that? I'm not trying to assign blame. Yeah. I'm just identifying that, that it's assigning blame to a whole generation is wrong when really just the opportunities are different and the way we succeed is different. If, if there really was the opportunities of the boomer generation, would we have a gig economy? Would, would side hustle be a thing that everybody's interested in? You know, no, there's a reason these things have changed. And it's not just because of some you know, timing quirk of what generation you were born into. 
I mean, I think social media undoubtedly is influencing this generation. Like, let's cut to the chase. If you can sit in your room in the air condition in front of your phone and talk into a microphone for periods of time and make money, of course you're going to want to do that over being like a lifeguard or a busboy or a waiter or working at Abercrombie and Finch at Fashion Square Mall. Everyone wants to be an influencer. But there was at a time... There so was a probably the detriment of their mental health. But there was, you know. there was a time, though, where we said Beavis and Butthead was going to contribute to the fall of older millennials or The Simpsons or Mad Libs mm-hmm. or Rolling Stone magazine or talking on the phone or instant messenger or passing notes to kids. And social media is just the newest version of passing notes to your, your crush in the classroom or talking on the phone for too long or spending too much time on AIM or reading Mad Libs or Rolling Stone or watching Beavis and Butthead or The Simpsons. Yeah, that's just what social know. media is. I think that's you're unfair. I'm going to disagree with that first. That's what social I, media is. No, I'm going to say that you're not categorizing those things correctly because when you're passing notes in class, that's something you're actively engaging in. How's that different than a text message or a direct message or sending a, a, someone a, te- a, a selfie? Not, a te- not necessarily a text message, um, although maybe the, the dopamine hit you get on a text message might be different. But I think social media and TikTok <laughs> in, in particular is different because there's an algorithm now driving your behavior. There was no algorithm except for your own um, thoughts on engaging when you were passing notes the in algorithm, class. The, the al- algorithm was called hormones. How many times in sixth grade did you write a note that was a deep feeling, fly six states away, and hand it to a stranger? Never. Never. It's not the same thing. Yes, I understand it has taken the place of that's a particular the, that's behavior. That's what I meant. That's taking the replace. The place. But it yeah, is not, that's today's behavior. It is not analogous to the, the behavior that it subsumes. A kid is getting in, a kid, a, a, this is a great topic, So, like a 14-year-old is getting up in someone's DMs. Now i got to look up a note. You know, as opposed to sending a note <laughs> saying, I have a crush on you. Now I have a crush on you is sending a DM. I have a crush on you. Before it was writing a note or telling your buddy to go tell her that I had a crush on Jessica. Hey, Kevin, will you go tell Jessica I have a crush on her? Now it's getting up in her DMs. I would separate maybe the the communication side, text message and and direct messages to another individual that you actively engage with from viewing like videos that you didn't actively choose to do that. That's, that's, I think what, what TikTok and and reels and a lot of these things are designed is like, you're not choosing it. You're, you're, there's absolutely no input other than then you just keep, you keep scrolling and the, uh, and the program's, is trying to get you to stay on. It's incentivizing itself to get you to stay on for just a little bit longer. That's That's 100% true. It's it's addicting in a way that those other things weren't. I I think social media is the aspartame of being social. (laughs) You're going to have to put that in seventh grade vernacular. I mean, like I know what aspartame is, and I like the use of it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the first time on the show. It's brain cancer. <laughs> it, it does, as well as some liver issues and other. You know, it, it you don't gain weight because your body can't process it, and so you just build up reservoirs of it till you explode. But that being said, um, often we we participate in things that feel like they're actual relationships, and we forget that they're not. For sure. And so I. I Back when I worked in healthcare, we worked 40-hour shifts and all through the night, and you were working with the same five or six people for two years, you often felt like 
they were your super close best friend and you would share personal details that nobody wanted to know because the circumstance that made it feel like a close relationship. I get that. And it wasn't. Social media is the same thing. Frequently on social media. Maybe even unlike, a, step, a step removed even. Unlike passing a note to somebody that you are stuck with for nine months, um, social media creates some of the same things, much like dating apps create some of the same things. And yes, people have learned how to navigate both in ways that are successful for them. But as a general rule, the failure rate is much, much higher. You know, you can watch people post innocuous things on Facebook and get destroyed by a thousand strangers that I'm wondering, why do you care what this person had to say? And then you have other people that live their life on Facebook that I'm like, why are you, why are you living your life on Facebook? Right. Go find some friends. Right. Um, and that's probably a generational comment. I don't think that's a generational comment. But, I think but that's I, reality. I, I think there is a social utility to a lot of the media that we use for particular things. Certainly, you know, it exists here. It exists in some of the work that I do. And I mean, you're teaching classes at KWA. Who's the agent, the, the agent that recently led a class for KWA agents on social media? Right. She, she, she had the Facebook cupcakes that she brought to your She seminar. did. And that's We're Courtney. not saying that's there's Courtney. no value yeah. for social media. Courtney, but, that's right. But remember that those values are more limited than actual humans. Yeah. And so social media is a way uh, to connect with people. It's good for marketing. I, there's even whole businesses in town that just use social media as a marketing thing, right? It's people that run whole businesses right now. I've heard about now. that, yeah. Um, I've heard about those companies too. Yeah. You know, most of them get mixed reviews, but I'm willing to give them a shot. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have a very charismatic leader to be successful. Thank you very much, Thank Lee Albertson. Um, I've always enjoyed you. The, I, I always feel like when we talk about social media, the social part should be in really, really small type. I agree with as you. As opposed it's, to the media part. Yeah. And, and I think it's really easy to forget, much like night shifts in an operating room, that that person I'm talking to online about really sensitive topics is not Lee, where we have history where I can say incredibly stupid and thoughtless things, and I've slowly in very, very small increments deposited into this account of kindness and grace with him over the years, so that when I do that, I, could, I have enough in there to make a big withdrawal and save our relationship. And that is not what has happened on social media. Agreed. When you, you know the, oh, well, I've got I've got fifty thousand followers. You don't know forty nine thousand nine hundred and fifty of those people, and the fifty that you think you know, you don't really know because you mostly know them online. Well, here here's the next thing, and whether we want to admit this or not, this is the early. And Carol Thorpe, you're right. She says social media opens you, exposes you to strangers of the world. Passing a note limits you to people you know in your classroom. Um, where we're at now in social media is, is, is so early stage. Very soon, social media is going to be interacting with all the people in your living room, sitting next to you in your couch, having conversations with people that may be technology or images that are actually not people. And I know you think that's scary, but that's going to happen. Well, I, I will say this, Jerry. Remember last year, um, all the rage was the metaverse. And metaverse I, is still a rage. Have you seen Meta's, Meta's stock over the, since November? Have you well, seen their, their most recent I would say the report? metaverse, I'm not going to call it a failure, but they've definitely... Re- we're, 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 like, we're not even in the first inning. Like, the metaverse hasn't even gotten... The metaverse is in spring training. The season hasn't even started. Okay. I, I, We're in training camp I, with I the would metaverse. say it's not... I, I, my outlook has not changed that I don't think it's what we think it's going to be. And I think 
So TikTok was just banned in Montana, Montana right? Like Montana. Just I, I'm, I despise TikTok. I mean, okay. uh, a social media app that's owned by the Chinese government should scare the bejeebus mm-hmm. out of America. In particular, I don't know if it's if if it was owned by like if China it was owned by an American company. I don't think it would be. I, I don't think it would be any better. I disagree. Why? Why would it be any different? A communist country has influence over an app that has the most influence over teens in America. The, uh, they, a, I, I a don't communist think, country that has beef with America. Okay, I, I'm going to say that I don't think that that the corporation that owns that theirs ByteDance. If, if it was owned, uh, yeah, I know, I know it's ByteDance. If it was owned by an American corporation, I don't think American corporations have value systems that are any better than the Chinese value systems. Their job is to get you to engage more in that. They're driven by profits. I think it's one of the downsides of living in a capitalistic society is that there's really no moral standard in those types of corporations. Now i got to look up morals. It's right next to empathy. You weigh in here. Do you think if it was owned by an American corporation, TikTok would be better? It would be uh, better. In you don't, you're not concerned that a communist country has influence over the number one app teenagers use? That's, uh, that no, I think not, that, that's not what I think that's a red herring. I think, I think associating it with the ownership is a red herring and where it comes from. Really? Yeah. Wow. Is that's, that's, not, why that's, is a, that's not what concerns me. It concerns me that Then why it's is the American addictive. government responding how they're doing? Where the American government is literally saying the communist country has influence over this, so we're going to ban it. Would we like to make a list of things the American government does that none of us understand? Touche. <laughs> Touche. How big would that list be? How Pretty much time long. is left? Yeah. Are we upset that it's, that it's a communist country? Or are we upset that a different kind of country created this social media app that a lot of a whole generation wants to engage in and it's not ours I mean the, the communist company you know the, this company can control an algorithm that's putting atop of a news feed the Kia challenge that encourages 13 year olds to hotwire cars and steal them Meta incur- Meta's Instagram encouraged uh, teenage girls to suicidal, increase their su- suicide rates suicidal, you want to know how many that, issues that's what how many, with how many bombers looked up how to build it on YouTube 100% 100% so I think our low, I mean, this is a topic for another show. But. If, if you're yeah. concerned about the effect TikTok is having on the youth of America, your concern about TikTok is wrong. You should be concerned about the youth of America. Being on this smartphones. This is, you know, it's a tool. It, it, yeah, it's a tool. You guys- and if you ban TikTok, but you still support, you know, private gun ownership, you should really think about your psyche. That's also for oh a whole other show. That's, that's, that's a, a different show. That's a multi-part series. That's a, that's, that's a week yeah. of shows right there. Why don't we close on something exciting? Uh, sure, uh, please. I well, adapt to you guys. I can, can I close on on something that was exciting that we did. But also the shirt. Yeah. Festival International uh, and Jazz Fest are both Louisiana festivals based on trying to bring in cultures from all over the world. And I would invite anyone if you're looking for a time to go. Uh, Engage in a very culture-rich time. Skip Mardi Gras nope. in Louisiana and go to Festival International. It happens in April in Lafayette every year. My dad was one of the um, people who helped found it, and um, it started in 1987. And they bring people from all over the world for music and artwork, and it's just a, a great place to be. And I will say that while I was there, 
saw less people on their phones. No, so which is important that's, to leave. It's very important to me. It's one of my core values. So that's something exciting that happened to me. What about you, Quentin? Uh, Dune you, 2 Dune two's coming out. Soon. Are we going to have a uh, viewing party? We, we, like need, we, did to, we need to rent Dune a theater one. like we did. Okay. I'm very, very excited about that. He did a Alamo, right? For Dune 1. Uh, we did it at Violet Crown, I think. Was it Violet Crown? We should okay. do it at <coughs> It was Violet Crown. Yeah. Quinn Beckham, Lee Alverson, you guys are awesome. Sincerely Thank love you for you having guys. us. I Thank love, you for joining me. I love doing the show with you guys. Love uh, being can the you, show. Well, is, you're on next week, I believe, right? A uh, week from today, yeah. week from today, Quinn Beckham. Um, so this is the show. We have fun. Quinn Beckham, KWA, Lee Elberson, Claiborne, Judah Wickhauer. My name is Jerry Miller. We talk about anything Charlottesville and Central Virginia related to your... Uh, or anything. <laughs> anything at all. I know. I love it. The I Love Seville Show, guys, in 50 minutes. Thank you kindly for joining us. So long, everyone. That was great. That was awesome. Yeah. <coughs> you guys come on. Oh, the pollen is killing me. <laughs> <laughs>